You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command in Central Maryland of the Blaze Media in your snowy, sleet, freezing rain, winter wonderland that I just came to from Florida, as you well know. I took my vacation last week, and it was 80 degrees there, and now we're back to this. So, my gosh, we have quite a vast country, uh, 100-degree swings in temperature from one end to another. But it is all the United States of America and all deserves protection of a sovereign state. As you guys well know, today I have out my second part in the series on the invasion of New Mexico. And read it in full. You'll see I have comments from the manager of the county, county manager. It's not exactly like a county executive, but she is the one who does manage the day-to-day operations there. And she's a registered Democrat and told me she is getting no help from the state government. So I meant to update you guys more on what's going on down there today. But unfortunately, I haven't had time to make the phone calls I need to as of this recording. Had a had a pretty busy weekend. Was doing a lot of stuff for the Cub Scouts, my son's Cub Scout uh, pack, and uh, all in preparation for a night away next week. We're taking the kids out. So I really haven't had time to follow up on some of the leads I've had. But like I said, there's a lot of really raunchy things going on in New Mexico. And we're going to, we're going to continue talking about that. Just first wanted to comment real briefly on pretty much what everyone is talking about now. And that is the anti-Semitic comments from this Somali Congresswoman from Mogadishu. Oh, I mean, Minneapolis Ilana, Elon Omar, however you pronounce her name. And, you know, I want to say from the onset, you guys know my views on these things. I think we all need to toughen up and stop being so offended. And, you know, hey, you know, you want to be a hater? Fine. Uh, That's fine. But you're exposed and we now know who you are. It was quite obvious with her. But I think there's a broader point that, some people are missing here. It's not a matter of how many Democrats are pressured into being trotted out and saying, Oh, I condemn her remarks. Um, you know, she basically said that the Congress is bought off by Jews being pro Israel. And then she said, it's all about the Benjamins children, whatever that meant. Look, my main issue is this. That along with the Jew hatred, along with the Israel hatred, is support for female genital genital mutilation, is support for Hamas and Hezbollah, is an array of values that run contrary to what America is. We have a sharply divided country, but we have certain universal values that I think, you know, inside of Washington, everyone's so race conscious and obsessed with uh, 
uh, you're this or you're that. You go out into America in this day and age and really, you know, everyone's kind of like meritocracy. If you're a jerk, you'll be called out. If you're a nice person, you'll be praised. That's my experience in life. And I think that's most of your experience. That's where we are in, in, in a nation like America in, in 2019. But when you import people in the hundreds of thousands every year that believe in values very different than our values, well, you're going to get a very different America. And now it's just more evident because this is the first time one of them has actually been elected to Congress. But you get values that we really you know, universally would never have wanted to import, certainly not your average American, if they were given a choice and say, hey, should we import people in the, in the hundreds of thousands from places like Somalia? No one would have ever done that. So that, that's the important thing that I think a lot of people are missing here. Sure, it's a big deal that she's a congresswoman, but how many more have we elected to bring in this country? I've always said that if we had a place in the world that was known to be saturated with a mentality that believes, you know, in stuff that David Duke believes in, neo-Nazi type of stuff, would we bring them in droves? No, I don't think we should. So the same thing applies for Islamic supremacism and everything connected to that. This mentality of the Jews control the world and all these conspiracy theories, that is the third world crap that we are bringing in in large numbers. We talk a lot about our border. We're going to continue talking about our border. But it's important not to lose sight of our masochism at our front door as well. So I just looked at the latest numbers. I have a spreadsheet in front of me of 47 predominant predominant Muslim countries. How many green cards we've issued to nationals of those countries since 2001? Why do I make that a benchmark? Because you would have thought that after 9-11, we would have had a cool off. Instead, we doubled down. You know, um, in 2001... We brought in 97,000 people from these countries collectively. Over the last decade, it's really ratcheted up. It was 132,000 in uh, 2008, 156,000 in 2009. Kind of plateaued up and down around there. It really peaked out in the final two years of Obama, 179,000. In 2016, 167,000 in 2017. Lots of numbers from Syria, um, Turkey, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Bangladesh. But you want to know, even under Trump in 2017, it was 167,000. Now, we're on pace for a little less. So I, I don't have the full numbers for 2018 yet. That data is not out yet. 
But what we do have is data for the first two quarters, first six months of the year. And um, I can't do math while I'm on the air because it's two different quarters to add up, but I put it out on Twitter. But it's something in the ballpark of 76,000. So if you say that that's an annualized pace equivalent in the first half of the year as is in the second half of the year, that would still put us over 150,000. 150,000. So, so much for this big Muslim ban that everyone talked about. You see a slight cool off. Now, I think the trajectory is headed down a little bit because a good number of the green cards issued, if you look into the numbers, which I have, the breakdown from CBP, I'm sorry, from DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security. So, most of them, let's say from the travel ban countries like Somalia and Syria, were adjustments of status. So that means these were people that were already admitted into the pipeline, maybe in the final months of Obama, and you know the Trump administration is just continuing to process them. But the new numbers, the new admissions are trickling down. And that is true from those five countries. But you still got the other 42. So we're still bringing in 150,000 a year on green cards. And that doesn't include all of the student visas and some other visas, which is at least as much. In total, since 2001, from these predominantly Muslim countries, we have issued 2.235 million green cards to nationals of these countries. And I'll point out, you know, there's countries that aren't on my list. For example, Kenya. I just realized I never put Kenya on the list. Kenya is not a predominantly Muslim country. I don't know what the population is, 10, 15, 20% Muslim, whatever it is. But a lot of the Somali refugees come from refugee camps in, in Kenya. So that's another country I'm not even including. India is a huge one. We bring in over 100,000 a year. Most majority of them are not Muslim, but about 15% of the population is. There's no way of knowing exactly how many, but you got to believe a certain amount is included in that. Another country we have a tremendous amount of immigration from is Nigeria. I don't have that included either. Uh, almost 50% of Nigeria is Muslim. So I just included these 47 countries are overwhelming majority of them are are Muslim. If you just look at the individual countries, the number of green cards we've issued since um, since 2001, you got Bangladesh, 219,611. Egypt, 150,038. Iran, 224,248. Oh my gosh. Iraq, 196,420. Pakistan, 281,000. Somalia, 107,651. And that's just since 2001. Obviously, Somalia, we really started letting in since 93. So the numbers are probably closer to 150,000 from Somalia. Turkey, 73,593. Um, 
Yemen, 61,220. Uzbekistan, that would surprise you, 70,547. That's all the diversity visa lottery. Let's see what else we got here. Some other big countries. Afghanistan, almost 90,000. Albania, that's another surprise. There's a lot of problems from there. 82,000. I mean, <laughs> do you understand what you're bringing in? Okay, hold that thought. Hold that thought for for a minute. Think for a minute, you know, 2.2 million plus you got all those green cards, which we have the student visas, which we haven't even spoken about. And that's a heck of a lot of people. Now think about the values. You you pull some of um, these countries, this is from Pew, a couple years, couple years old. Opinion of Jews. Egypt, 2% favorable, uh, 95% unfavorable. Pakistan, 5% favorable, 78% unfavorable. Turkey, 6% favorable, 73% unfavorable. Lebanon, 2% favorable, 98% unfavorable. Jordan, 3% favorable, 97% have an unfavorable view of Jews. And and Jordan also, we've led in about 73,500. You look at the percentage of people who favor making Sharia the official law in their country. Okay? 99% of those in Afghanistan, 84% of those in Pakistan, 82% of those in Bangladesh. 91% of those in Iraq, 74% of those in in Egypt, and I don't have Somalia here. doesn't look like I have Somalia, but anyway, you see what I'm driving at. If you bring in a couple people here and there, you have a very strong American culture, a very strong incentive to assimilate, you know, theoretically it could work, and we're all for the melting pot. But if you're going to bring in 2.2 million green through green cards and roughly the same amount through visas over the course of 18 years, guess what? You're going to bring in what's in that polling data. You're going to bring in that mindset. You're going to bring in those values. And I'm not just talking about, oh, you know, the... Typical kind of third world like Latin America where you're bringing in Democrat values, you know, left-wing values, socialism, people that are going to give Democrats a, a permanent majority. That, that's a political argument, and it's important if you want – if you don't want Democrats to obtain a permanent majority, that's a separate argument. But I'm going a step further. I'm talking about universal values. Okay, most people who vote Democrat in this country are not anti-Semitic. Okay, they're not. They're not. They don't support FGM. They might not realize what they're voting for, but they themselves don't support Hamas and Hezbollah. But this is what we're importing. So it might be shocking. Oh my gosh, this is someone who was actually elected, but she's just like anyone else who came over from a place like Somalia. And by the way, I don't have time to go into this now again, but I'm going to link to this in show notes. A report from November 
from PJ Media's David Steinberg. You could read his write-up on Elon Omar engaging in immigration fraud, marriage fraud, perjury, student loan fraud, all things. And, and, and this evidence is rebutted about her lying about marriage. And again, this stuff would have made her disqualified for naturalizing as a U.S. citizen, right? She's an immigrant from Somalia. I believe she also actually spent time in a, in a camp in Kenya, but she immigrated from Somalia. She's from Mogadishu, spent her early years in some other hellhole in, in Somalia. And, you know, something here is just really reeks. She became a U.S. citizen in 2000. Something is really funny about what she did. You know, because this raises questions about whether she could be denaturalized. I don't know. But I'm just saying the Justice Department needs to look into this. And I think if this would have been anyone else, we would have done it. Her, her skin color shouldn't give her a greater protection. But anyway, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but everyone's talking about this today. I just wanted to say it's not surprising. How many more people believe in this? Why do you think you have a, a rash of anti-Semitism on college campuses now? Because college campuses, aside from the inherent American leftists, you have a tremendous amount coming from the Middle East and third world countries where they're going to come with this mentality of Jews run the world. It's the type of crap that Americans don't go for, Republican or Democrat. But it's the type of thing that's very pervasive in these countries. You bring in a couple here and there. Again, you could uh, obviously hope to assimilate them, but you bring in that many and they cluster in these areas, these communities, you're going to get Mogadishu. You're not going to get America. So that's a really important point there. So that's our front door. I think Trump has done some help. Certainly, as it relates to refugees, the refugee numbers are down to just a few thousand a year. And he should be applauded for that. But still, most of the rest of the immigration is still on autopilot. So again, it wouldn't surprise me if when we get data for the final six months of last year, and then certainly the trajectory going this year, the numbers will be down. But it's still a lot. That's even after this much vaunted shutoff. It's not even a shutoff. Okay, it's a slowdown from really five of the 47 countries. So, you know, Elon Omar is not just some feisty political anti-Semite who happens to have you know immigrated from from uh from Somalia or or her sidekick that the the babe from uh Detroit, Tiblid, however you pronounce her name, um, who's Palestinian, whatever Palestinian even means, she wrote for Louis Farrakhan's publication. I mean, again, you know, if you had People are going to compare her to Steve King, but Steve King didn't write for David Duke's publication. Steve King 
didn't say any of this stuff. As we said before, as clumsy as and as dumb as sometimes, you know, he says things. It's not even it's not a comparison. But of course, you know, they'll just put out a statement, you know, the pressure is mounted enough, but they're not going to kick her off the committee like Republicans did to Steve King for nothing. So that's with that. Next thing I just wanted to, before we move back to our border, I wanted to clean up just one point I made on Friday about the Supreme Court decision Thursday night in the Louisiana abortion regulation case, right? That was the case where they actually actively put an injunction. John Roberts joined with the other four liberals where the lower courts for once refused to put an injunction on. The Supreme Court put an injunction on Louisiana's law simply requiring that abortion physicians have qualifications that would allow them to have active admitting rights in a local hospital within 30 miles of their practice. So there were a lot of subtle points we made just to demonstrate how bad the Supreme Court is. But I just wanted to point to you, um, point out an article from Greg Storr of Bloomberg. So he is one of their legal writers. And I just want to point out that he made, he made one of the arguments I made on Friday that we should, as conservatives, and he's not a conservative, but as conservatives, we should be wary of Brett Kavanaugh as well. So a lot of people were confused when four justices, including Kavanaugh, dissented, and they were like, no, we, we would not have put on this injunction. Kavanaugh actually wrote a four-page explanation, but it wasn't joined by the others. Now, typically, when you dissent from either a denial of cert or dissent from a decision to put an injunction on, in other words, it's not an opinion on the merits. So often you just have a vote and there's no written trail of it. When you have an opinion, there's a written uh, opinion on it, obviously. So often you don't have a written thing, but usually if there's a written opinion, it means they're more emphatic about dissenting. But I pointed out to you guys that in this case, it was actually the opposite. Because Kavanaugh's dissent was so nuanced, I was warning you that, well, why didn't the others sign on to it? You know, it is true what he said. What he basically said was that even if you agree with the president from Hellerstadt, where the Supreme Court ruled um, in a similar case in Texas, that putting these restrictions on doctors is too much of a burden of the constitutional right to choose of an abortion— it, it limits their access too much. So in this case, there's, there's no evidence that these people would not be admitted to the hospitals. Indeed, there's evidence to the contrary that they wouldn't even be limited. So he made that case. It was like, look, there's nothing to put an injunction on yet. But you know, if there is, come back to me. That's basically what he said. And I was warning you guys, it's true what he said, that Splitting of hairs, but why are we splitting hairs 10, 10 tranches into the pits of judicial hell? None of it, it, it should be recognized. And my concern was that Kavanaugh was setting up, really setting the stage to give a split the baby opinion where he won't even overturn Hellerstat, much less Rower Casey. So I'm going to link to this article because I think, you know, other people are seeing that 
folks, watch out for Kavanaugh. Let's not forget, Kavanaugh is the uh, secretary, staff secretary of the White House under George W. Bush. He was the guy, according to George W. in his book, who convinced Bush to appoint or to nominate John Roberts to fill the then vacancy for, for Rehnquist's seat instead of Michael Ludig of the Fourth Circuit. By the way, it's funny. Um, Judge Ludig, he's now he now works for Boeing. He's he's retired. He must have seen my article, um, you know, where I reference you know the problem, the growing problems with Kavanaugh, and he just sent me uh, a note. Hey, take a look at what I wrote in an abortion case when I was on the Fourth Circuit. <laughs> you know, like this is what you guys could have gotten instead of Roberts. But there's that. So anyway, I just wanted to point out to you, we're in for a rough ride with Kavanaugh, in my view. So if you think that, well, maybe there'll be another vacancy. Now, I don't mean, I hate speculating about people's deaths, but I'm just telling you, you know, Ginsburg has not retired until now. And there's less than two years left on Trump's clock. If he doesn't get reelected, we don't know if he will. If he doesn't get reelected, you know, you only have a little less than two years. It's not a guarantee you're going to have that seat. But even if you do, there is no evidence that we'll even have a fifth vote for a lot of what we want. Because whereas Roberts has become the new Kennedy. Kavanaugh's the new Roberts. And then, you know, there's there's concerns about Gorsuch on certain criminal alien issues as well. So that's with that. All right, back to the border. So as of today's show, there really is no news on what's going to happen on Friday or by Friday when the deadline lapses for the latest short-term funding bill which includes, among other agencies, not fully funded for the rest of the year, Department of Homeland Security, all our border policies, interior enforcement, immigration-related. We don't know what's going to happen, but the first good piece of news is that what we warned you about on Friday with Democrats and even rhinos agreeing to it to forge a plan that would, A, deplete or statutorily limit the number of detention beds that ICE could hold, which is just not even so much of a backdoor way, uh, almost a front door way of letting go criminal aliens through the interior at the border immediately, which is what the left wants, of course. Uh, there's no no doubt about that. Also, they had provisions that were going to permanently bar USCIS from following Sessions' guidance on actually interpreting the asylum statute properly. So the good news is the president rejected that flatly. You know, at this point, the best we could hope for, like I said, is to keep doing short terms. What you don't want is a long-term bill that just takes away any leverage point to have a national discussion over this or to make things worse than the status quo. That's what we need to work towards. I I know it sounds, you know, like I have low expectations. 
but that is something. We need to continue this national discussion. If we are making the border the top issue for that week, that's a winner. Because, again, let's face it. It's not that there aren't other important issues on health care and, and the debt and things like that, but we know we're not doing anything about that. That's for sure. But when it comes to fixing our front door and our back door, this is stuff that is universal. I mean, I felt this through my conversations with some local officials in New Mexico. A few of them, including the county manager in Hidalgo, are Democrats. And yet, they appreciate the work I'm doing. Nobody wants an invasion. So, you know, what we need now is I need other colleagues and people that have the ear of the White House to continue making the case that I'm making that Trump needs to credibly threaten to go the executive route, but do it in a broader way, in a systemic way, where you designate the cartels as terrorists. You beef up the the National Guard, and as I note in my article today, invoke Title 10, which allows him to override the governors and marshal them completely into his support. I mean, I mean his uh, uh, under his, the auspices of of his command, which would basically take away control from the governors, at least as it relates to the border deployment. And then once you do those things, and you start threatening the cartels, then if you want to use the Emergencies Act to reprogram some DoD funding for a border wall, I think you know. Politically and legally, it will make your case a lot easier. But I need other people making that case to the president. Another big thing that happened over the weekend, some of you may, might have seen this, is that the Texas Rangers, led by Colonel McGraw, he runs a Texas Department of Public Safety, had a show of force in Eagle Pass. That's the dead center part of Texas. That's the It's really the next border crossing to the west of Laredo. It's west of Laredo. And they had a show of force of 500 patrolmen lined up right at the river saying, we are not going to allow anyone to come across. It was in response. So, you know, again, you have the just daily tons of people coming over. And then you have the official organized caravans. So this was a caravan of 1800 that are right around the border area on the other side of Eagle Pass. And you know, they were threatening to come in. It's in Piedras Negras is the sister city of Eagle Pass on the other side of Mexican border. And it's important to remember that there's a perfect storm that's now driving the migration to New Mexico. So number one, you have stepped up enforcement in Texas. Number two, you have the violence with the cartels, the cartel of the north, that's the faction of the Zetas, versus the Gulf cartel in the eastern part of the state pushing them to the west. Now in the west, you really don't have much infrastructure until El Paso, and El Paso, you have the wall. So really... um, 
New Mexico is the place they're going to go. Also, the Coila state of Mexico, that's the state that is um you know, right under the dead center part of Texas in Eagle Pass, Del Rio, that the governor of that state, forget forget his name, but the governor said they're done with the caravans. You know, he's not going to let them in where he is. So all of that is going to push them over to the next province, which is Chihuahua. And that's under New Mexico. And that's controlled by Sinaloa with no – Sinaloa does not have any competition there. So again, remember, ironically, on the Mexican side, if you only have one cartel controlling a given area – and there's no competition, so there's actually less violence. So that's where they're going to come in, and Sinaloa is going to get all the windfall from them and bring them right in. I mean, you could imagine. Look at the stark contrast. You have the show of force in Texas, and then you have the New Mexican governor publicly announcing that she's pulling back the National Guard from the New Mexico border. Well, gee, what do you think is going to happen? Well, a the Caravans now have to come west anyway, and they come through Sinaloa. And Sinaloa's be like, "Holy hell, we got a wide open gate here, right in New Mexico. Let's bring them in. Let's bring them in right here, right now." And that's what's going to happen, which is why I think we'll comment on this after the speech. But Trump's speech tonight at seven o'clock, um, I believe it's seven Central Time. In El Paso, he really needs to focus on the New Mexico governor and focus on these executive powers that he has. So I just think, again, this is the lesson of incentives and disincentives, deterrent. It's all about that. If you invite them in, as the New Mexico government does, they'll come. If you say you're not wanted here, they won't come. Unfortunately, the courts have opened up a welcome mat legally, but that's the thing. I mean, they all know about this. I read an article. I can't remember where it was. It might have been the Las Cruces uh, newspaper. That's the paper in Southern Las Cruces Sun News. They were talking about They sent a reporter down to Guatemala because most of them are coming from Guatemala, by the way, more so than the other two countries. And by the way, Guatemala of the three, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, is by far relatively the least violent. So again, it's it's a joke that this is violence driving it. It's all economic and it's all family reunification with other illegals that already violated our sovereignty. But they sent a reporter down there. And I wish I had the article in front of me because I, I was just combing through a lot of local media there to try to you know see what they were picking up on. They sent this reporter down there, and it was amazing. They were talking about neighborhoods where you know, you'd have a shop owner say, hey, you know, everyone in this neighborhood just packed out to America. You know, literally just packed out. <laughs> and you see it was all incentives. If they, if they think... See, we might think, oh, there's stepped-up enforcement here or there, but if they don't get that message... If they hear back from family members, so one of them talk, talked about, hey, I have a family member now living in New Jersey. Well, they'll be like, hey, you know, I'll do the same. Until the message gets back to them that 
crime doesn't pay, violating our sovereignty doesn't pay, you're out of here, then they're going to come. It's really that simple. This is well beyond the debate of even a border wall. It's incentives and disincentives. We see this thesis being proven right every single day. Without exception. And by the way, another thing they were picking up on, which which is all over the media now, that the cartels themselves are actually advertising, you know, they're in Mexico, but they're advertising in Central America. Hey, you know, now's the time to come. I mean, again, what other group of criminal entities could violate our sovereignty so much and get away with it? We would never do this in any other context and not treat it like an invasion. But here, because it's inextricably linked to the immigration issue, and that's become sacred to the political elites, they refuse to recognize the threat of the cartels. I want to read to you something else here. Okay, this is this is very important here. This is actually from the Las Cruces Sun News. They talk about Antelope Wells. Antelope Wells is that border crossing on Route 81 going into New Mexico in the boot heel in Hidalgo County. This was a place that literally for years had one man manning it. Often they had four cars, right? Four vehicles that would pass through it. A couple of years ago, they were even contemplating getting rid of it. Now imagine having 27 groups of 100 to 400 at a time come over within a period of three months. Imagine that. Okay? CBP put out new numbers, and they said 58 large groups have come in this fiscal year so far relative to 13 last year. So, first of all, the the macro number is very telling. We are now almost up to as many family units apprehended in just the first four months of of fiscal year 2019 than the entire fiscal year 2018. And remember that when you're including the entire fiscal year 2018, that already includes the second half of the year is when the invasion started. So it's not like the numbers were low. The numbers were very high the second half last year. But it's even higher the first four months this year than even the the last six months of last year. But... Think about the fact that half of those things, of those invasions, came in not at San Diego. They had some, not at Tucson or Yuma or El Paso or Laredo, which has a lot of infrastructure. Half of them came in at Antelope Wells, Hidalgo County. Not, there's n- literally nothing there. There's 5,000 residents at the border. Antelope Wells is not even a, a village. It's, it's, it's a border crossing. It's a crossing. It's like an intersection. There's a CBP building, and it's not even full service. So they have to take them back to Lordsburg, which is what, like 70, 80 miles north? Um, there's literally nothing there in that boot heel. So here's the article. Half a dozen children gazed up at the camera, their eyes wide beneath hats and hoodies, hands buried in their pockets or nuzzled in their necks of their mothers. Floodlights illuminated some faces and left others in darkness. It was after midnight in New Mexico's remote boot heel region, and with the temperature hovering near freezing, a Border Patrol agent snapped the photo. Nearly 150 miles away, the tiny emergency room 
of the Gila Regional Medical Center in Silver City, the nearest 24-hour hospital, was on notice. Some of the children would need medical care for illness, others for injury. The Border Patrol has been very cooperative cooperative in giving us advance warning, said Doug Oaks, Director of Marketing for GRMC. There are just so many. They are dehydrated. They are often sick. I want you just, I just want to stop there. So the nearest hospital, which in itself is a tiny, tiny, tiny hospital, is 150 miles away in uh, Gila. And, or maybe that's in Silver City. Gila is the region. Um, that's where you have the national park. And they're like, yeah, we're on standby. We have all these people dehydrated coming with diseases. Has anyone ever questioned for a moment, what about us? Like, how is that not cruel to Americans? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about the failing of rural hospitals. And there's a whole, a lot of that has to do with the cartel. You know, it's funny. I use the term cartel for the healthcare cartel as well as the Mexican cartels. But in general, because of the monopoly we gave to all these healthcare conglomerates, there's a lot of reasons why rural hospitals have been hurt because also individual physicians are not allowed to purchase them. So it's only these conglomerates, right? Because that's part of the ban in Obamacare of physician-owned hospitals. So there's, a, in general, a healthcare problem with a lot of rural facilities. So to begin with, the services are very limited. And whatever is there should be for the people of America. And yet now they have to be flooded Within a period of three months, 27 groups of 100 or more at a time, many of them going to the hospital. You know, so a lot of people are talking about a humanitarian crisis of the migrants, and that's true. But it's like, it's almost like you're not allowed to talk about Americans. What about us? What about the forgotten man? I don't understand how that in itself is not an emergency. Officially, the, the feds reimbursed them for, for this treatment, but it takes a long time. The um, Hidalgo County Manager Tisha Green told me that they only got reimbursed for maybe 41%. It's a six-hour trip, round trip, that two agents for everyone taken there. So it drains our hospitals, and it takes two agents per person, and that's when the cartels just do whatever the heck they want. It's unbelievable. Let's continue the article. Hospitals and clinics from Silver City to Deming, Lordsburg, and Almogordo have treated children for flu, dehydration, rashes, scabies, sprains, and other ailments. Border Patrol reported that one of the adults in the group of 306 that arrived last week was suffering from a flesh-eating bacteria or... Um, necrotizing facilities, an infection that rarely spreads person to person. Dehydration, poor nutrition, and harsh weather leave migrants susceptible to stomach viruses and the flu. And then there is the emotional trauma of leaving behind family and country. For the kids, the risks are enormous, said Marlene Basca, a physician assistant who runs a clinic in Animas, a boot heel ranching town with a population of 267 that sees children in the border patrol custody. Look at this. It's not even just the Hicktown hospitals. It's like tiny ad hoc clinics, privately owned clinics in boot heel towns of 267 people are now servicing the border patrol 
which in itself is servicing Guatemala. I, I just don't understand this. I don't understand how this is not shut down immediately. This, this is just unbelievable. I can't believe this. This is just utterly insane. Antelope Wells is hardly a, pa- uh, a place other than for port infrastructure at the terminus of State Road 81. Ranch land sprawls to the Hatchet Mountains to the east and the Animus Mountains to the west. Winter nights out here are dark, starry, and dangerously cold. Hidalgo Medical Services Chief Executive Dan Otero says the nonprofit's clinics have seen an average of 30 migrants a month for the past four months, six times the usual rate. Meanwhile, the volume of ambulance runs by Hidalgo County Emergency Medical Services has jumped threefold, according to Director David Whipple. When the group of 306 arrived at Antelope Wells, his six-person team transported three patients to the hospital, one run from Lordsburg to border crossing to Deming and back took six hours. Border Patrol needs more EMTs, Whipple said. They need an RN or a PA or someone of a higher level so people get proper screenings, but they are not set up for it. They were never set up for families coming across. Think about it. You have four sheriff's deputies. You have seven or so um, EMS service in this county of 5,000 Americans. What if they have an emergency? And yet they're not available because they're trading foreign nationals. Folks, that is a violation of why we have government. I know I sound like a broken record, but this can't be said enough. It's unbelievable. So sad. So, so sad. So that's what's going on with this. But then you have more. Then you have the criminal elements. Meaning, if not a single criminal alien ever came across and ever did anything other than coming here illegally, it would be a travesty enough. The, the fiscal charge, the strain on healthcare, the uh, exposing danger of exposing Americans to diseases, that in itself is something that in no other generation would they have tolerated for a single week, much less allow this to go on for years and intensify. The reality is, as we've noted, we have a hell of a criminal alien problem. According to DHS, there are 2 million known criminal aliens in this country, 900,000 arrested every year, 500,000 moving out of the criminal justice system every year. There's always this debate over, well, do they commit more crimes than Americans? Now, as we've said before, if you under if you put together a number of different data points plus the common sense that you bring in young people from the most violent cultures homogeneously violent cultures gee yeah of course you're they're going to commit higher rates of crime we've noted that obviously there's no direct mathematical formula because you need a numerator and a denominator and that data just doesn't exist the data is very very tenuous, even just among Americans, just you know, to have uniform crime statistics to compare to each other. Um, very tenuous. But, but here's the deal. 
Here's what's so important. FAIR, Federation for American Immigration Reform, they did something that I was in the middle of doing, but you know I'm so busy, I kind of just dropped it, and now I'll just rely on their work. There's something called SCAP, that State Criminal Alien Assistance Program. Uh, you know, we mentioned that the feds have to reimburse the states for the cost of the healthcare hospitals. So you also have to reimburse local and state prisons for housing um, illegal immigrants. So what FAIR did is they studied the 10 states that have the most illegal immigrants. Arizona, California, Florida, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Texas, and Washington. Together, those 10 states comprise 65% of the nation's illegal alien population, according to their estimate. Um, I don't think anyone disputes their rough numbers on that. So they studied the prison population, and you could see how many SCAP requests a state issued. In other words, if a state requests X and X number of SCAP payments, I want to be reimbursed from the feds under the SCAP program for housing an illegal in our prison. Okay, so you could count the number of illegals in the prisons. And then you could compare that relative to their share of the population. Now, they found that if you put the states together, just the 10 together, illegal aliens are incarcerated at at least three times, are at least three times likely to be incarcerated. Three times as non-illegal aliens. In California, it was, right, that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, is 3.3 times as likely. In New Jersey, was 5.5. Arizona, four times as likely. Washington, 3.5. Oregon, 3.7 times as likely. Okay. And this is a very thorough analysis. Very well done. It's a ton that I just didn't have to put into it. Very good. Um, you know, very, very good data. Now, obviously, you know, there's different ways to approach this. We've been focusing mainly on the ICE statistics, the number of arrests they make of of aliens with um criminal with criminal records. And we noted that it's obvious, you know, if every year ICE gets a hold of enough aliens that commit 2,000 murders when only roughly 9,600 in total are arrested in a given year for homicide, that's insane. Right? That, that's almost, that's more than a fifth. Now, it's a little complicated because those numbers are criminal aliens, so that includes criminal legal immigrants too. So illegal immigrants are about 3.5% of the population, but we're always told that legal immigrants commit much less crime. Now, it depends on which group, but in general, that is true. So you have to believe the majority of them are illegals. So 
you know, you can't say 3.5% commit 20% of murders, but it's certainly a heck of a lot more than their composition of the, of the pie. It's obvious. That's what we've been focusing on until now. So they work on prison population. Now, it's important to remember that these numbers are staggering because you know you, you could always come up whenever you again we don't have direct numbers on how much crime each group of people commit that we could compare we just the, the number doesn't exist so prison population is not exactly synonymous with what we're looking for and you could always come up with mitigating factors factors why really the number you're looking for in terms of crimes ultimately committed would be less or more. But if you look at the factors, it's more likely that that this even understates the degree of criminality. And the reason is because both at the front end and back end, illegals are going to be in prison less than Americans. Why? Let's discuss the front end. You have a whole number, we talk about this all the time, of what's considered lower-level crimes that maybe would land in a, uh, an American in prison for a couple months. Okay, it's a certain type of drug trafficking. It's an assault of some sort that wasn't that big. Heck, you'd be surprised even the big ones. They don't go away for too long. So what will often happen is, you know, it's hard to land a conviction, as we say all the time. It takes a while. Sometimes it's just worth it, and I don't disagree with this policy, just to get rid of them, You know, if you just deport them. Obviously, if someone committed murder, you owe that victim justice. you got to see it through. you got to put them behind bars, hopefully give them the death penalty. Um, but you know, if, it, if it's a lower-level thing, often they'll deport them, meaning every American of that level of crime, let's say, would have gotten three months in prison, so they would have been you – would, you would see them in the prison population. But these people, you're not going to see them in prison because they're deported before. Then there's also the back end that we're missing. See, Americans, Americans, when what happens when they're let out of prison? So let's say, let's say it's a bad dude. He did something really bad, eight years, 10 years in prison. Okay. Serves a, a substantial amount. Well, what do you mean what happens? You're gonna say well, he's he's let out. Well, what happens when he's let out? As you all know, we have a major recidivism problem. Right? According to Bureau of Justice Statistics, the Department of Justice, 83.4% of all prisoners released in 2005, there's a massive study they did, 68,000 prisoners, 83.4% reoffended within nine years. Again, on the back end, so first of all, front end, a lot of them, we don't even choose to lock them up. We'll just deport them. And then on the back end, on the back end, as soon as you're done, let's say there was an illegal alien that served time for robbery. He's in jail for eight years. He's let out. Boom, he's turned over to ICE. He's deported. Now, some do wind up coming back, but again, majority of them, we deport them. How many Americans are deported? Zero. And if they're not deported, what's going to happen? They're going to wind up back in prison. So again, look at all of the aliens that are not in prison, but it doesn't mean they commit less crime. They don't. It's just that they're taken out of the universe, which, which leads me to the broader point that we're making here. And I know I've said it a couple times in the show, but it's worth repeating. 
We have deported from 1998 through 2016 5.6 million illegal aliens. Well, I should say aliens. Some of them are were legal. 5.6 million. So let's say, you know, the last two years is a couple, you know, it's at least 6 million. Because we, we, you know, if you would add in the 2017, 2018 data, um, that would, the data is a little different, but I do have it. That would be do, 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 roughly another 500,000, so 5.6. It, it's going to take you over 6 million. It's, it's accurate to say that over the last 20 years, over the last 20 years, that's a generation. So you take a period of a generation, 6 million illegals. And again, several million of them were, had criminal records. And usually the worse you are, the more likely we're going to get you and deport you. We took the worst element. We're, again, we're trying a numerator and denominator. We're trying to compare the degree of criminality of aliens to that of citizens based on the prison population. You know, those sitting in prison who are aliens, those sitting in prison who are citizens. We have taken six million and among them the most potent group out of the universe. Six million have been deported. How many Americans have been deported? Zero, because obviously you can't deport an American citizen. So what happens? Recidivism, 83.4% within nine years reoffend. Here's a 20-year period. Now, there is some recidivism in the sense that some of them did come back because we have a poor border, even after the deportation. So you have to deduct a certain unknown number. It's not, you know, the case is a slightly less, slightly weaker relatively, than I'm making it to be, because it's not 6 million, let's say it's 4.5 million, 5 million, whatever that number would be, but it's a heck of a lot of people. Could you imagine if we did what the left wanted to do and not have interior enforcement, even the amount we have, and not have border security, even the amount we have? Because remember, over the same period, we have turned back 15 million or returned 15 million at the border. Imagine if we would have let all them come in. And we already know they have a three time they have three times greater propensity to be in prison than illegals than, than, than citizens. And that's without having all these numbers. Imagine if we would have had them. So you can hear all this garbage of all oh, the fair study is not exactly because it's scap numbers, you know, and then they always like to say, well, you know, maybe, how do you know it's accurate? Maybe the states are defrauding the feds because they want more money. I mean, come on. There's no evidence based on the government accountability office, what they've audited the program, that there's, you know, there's always going to be fraud, that it's widespread. More or less, it's an accurate, it's a pretty accurate perception of what's in prison. But what I'm telling you is it actually understates it. Because A, Often they're never put into prison, they're deported immediately. B, immediately after they serve their time, they're deported rather than most American criminals, which cycle in and out. So they're going to be in prison more a second and third or fourth time over the course of a generation. And number three, putting those two data points together gives you a third point, which is that over the course of a generation, you have a cascading momentum of all the most potent criminals, the 10% you know, it's not a real number I'm giving. I'm just, you know, saying, you know, the 10% that commit the 90 type of thing, 
the small amount of people that commit most of the crime are taken out of the universe because they're deported, a, me- a legal mechanism you only have with aliens, not with Americans. And still we have this degree of criminality. Still we have this degree of the prison population. This is what we're saddling Americans with. Which leads me to the drug crisis. You know, now it's abundantly clear that the entire notion that we have a prescription drug crisis is a complete hoax and has been for quite a number of years. A complete hoax. Just a total, unadulterated hoax. You have the news out of Atlanta, some of you might have seen, where... I actually know the special agent in charge of DEA there. I'm, I have a call into him, try to get more details. But they busted up not just a drug smuggling, smuggling, smuggling operation, but a meth lab, a Mexican cartel meth lab in the Atlanta area. Everyone they arrested obviously was a Mexican national. This is not a doctor-driven problem. It's not about pharmaceuticals. This is an external invasion of criminal aliens. So I don't know what's worse. What we started out our show with are suicidal front door policies of bringing in 2.2 million from the Middle East, 2.3 million over the course of a generation, or bringing in millions of criminal aliens through a border over that same period of time. But either way, we have a front door and a back door that is so wide open that nothing matters until this issue is dealt with. And that's why, you know, again, I know I'm missing some other news that I really want to share with you. But until this is over with, we're going to keep focusing on it. We're going to keep having guests on, looking for more guests. Hope a lot of this stuff was helpful today. Let me know if you have any questions. Email me, dhorowitz at at blazemedia.com, and I'll I'll try to answer them. But uh, this is very important. We're going to link to the FAIR study. They did a really good job. I approve of it. And like I'm telling you, if anything, it understates the degree of criminality, cultural problems, healthcare problems, education problems, the schools, diseases, crime. Nobody wants to talk about it in the political class because the truth hurts too much. But that's precisely why we're going to continue talking about it here. Till next time, God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.